Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Laura Lynch. You're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And today, as we near the end of 2023, we wanted to revisit some of our favorite stories from this year. Stories that featured hope, laughter, and got you, our listeners, especially fired up. But let's start with a story that surprised me. Molly? Hey. Hey. (laughs) What are you doing here? Well, I thought I'd introduce the episode with you. Okay. That's what on earth producer Molly Siegel. She's joining me now. Um, Maybe the reason you've decided to come in here is because you've been working away on stories about how different countries are planning a future that's sort of beyond fossil fuels and what Canada can learn from that. Yeah, but let's hear something else first. Sometimes football is more than just a game, and it is an extra special occasion at the Veltins Arena this evening. FC Schalke So in case you haven't caught on, it's a soccer match. Yeah, I figured that out. Thanks, Molly. <laughs> but listen carefully. And they are commemorating the closing of the coal mine industry at the same time. And there are around 2,000 miners in attendance at the stadium So it's not just any soccer match, as you can hear. We're listening to a video posted to YouTube by the Bundesliga Football League. This was December 20th, 2018, the day before the last hard coal mine closed in Germany's Ruhr Valley. It's going to be an emotional game, and obviously the Ruhrgebiet, Schalke, Dortmund, they they have a lot of miners in the families. So picture this. The stands are packed, and basically everyone has a flag in their hands. And on each flag, there's an image of a mining pick. And you can kind of imagine if this was in Canada, it would be like an NHL game, maybe the Edmonton Oilers or something, right? Right, the Oilers perhaps paying tribute to oil workers who were suddenly not going to have their jobs anymore because, say, the the oil sands closed down, something like that. Yeah, that that would be the like imagined equivalent in my mind. And sorry to divert us here, but I couldn't wait to share this with you because when I heard it, I was so surprised because what it said to me was that coal was such a part of the identity of this region, not just, you know, the jobs that people had. And so to hear this this soccer match celebrating and, and saying goodbye and honoring that change, it just really resonated. And Molly, I know you're looking for lessons from Germany about how workers and communities can deal with the transition away from fossil fuels. Here in Canada, that conversation can be political and fraught. So let's see what we can learn. Take it away, Molly. We'll kick things off back in that soccer stadium in Germany's Ruhr Valley, where mining was a permanent fixture, even down to the decor. The entire um, changing rooms and everything is actually styled as if you were going down into the mines so that, you know, if these football or soccer players came out, come out to the field, they go up as if they are coming out of mines. This is Petra Delata, an associate professor of energy history at the University of Calgary. Okay, so I grew up in a region that's called um, the Ruhrgebiet, which is in West Germany. It's about an hour north of Cologne. 
and it has been defined by coal and steel uh, since the early 20th century. The story behind that 2018 farewell to coal soccer match starts before global warming was center stage. You need to go back in the 1950s. So the first crisis really ensues around 1957-1958. During the Second World War, Germany wasn't investing in its mining industry, Petra says. And some coal mines were even destroyed by bombs. So when the war ended, after a few cold winters hit, Germany didn't have enough coal to keep everyone warm. That prompted the government to sign trade agreements to bring coal in from other countries. But by the late 1950s, things had rebounded, and there was no longer a shortage of coal, but a glut. Mounds of it piled up outside of mines. The German government realized it had to make big cuts to the industry. Those heaps of coal meant jobs disappearing. In 1959, we have the first big protest, and there were over 60,000 miners. Over the decades, protests would become a key ingredient in amplifying the voices of workers asking for a secure future. But this time around, Petra says, from the late 1950s until the mid-60s, 165,000 people were laid off. It was around this time that her father was just getting his start in the industry. Mikrofon deaktivieren. Pop, pop, pop. This is Werner Delata on a video call with Petra. Who agreed to help interpret for us. Elisabeth, Petra's mother. Both are long retired now. Elisabeth, a teacher, and Werner, an accountant within the coal company. His father had worked in the coal mines. And Werner started his training for an office job with the mine when he was just 17. I have worked uh, since uh, 1967 there. So Werner was just starting out after the layoffs, and things were about to change for workers like him. His own career tells a bit of the story of Germany's transition off coal. It was clear more mines would close, but it was also clear that people were angry about how things had been handled. So unions, industry, and government... They sat together and uh, talked about how can you make this phase-out, this closing of mines, more socially acceptable. And what they came up with was the founding of a semi-public company called the Ruhrkula AG, which was founded in 1969. And they covered around 80% of all coal mines in Germany. This semi-public company was a way to make sure coal workers weren't all hooped when their local mine closed. When that happened in their hometown, workers could catch a company bus to a nearby town. And that's what Werner did. He already had an early retirement date as part of the phase-out. He knew he would start getting less work at 58, and by 60, he would stop altogether. It was based on what was called the German Coal Adjustment Act. And in this Adjustment Act, there really were already various regulations included that would kind of uh, provide a controlled face-out, a face-out that allowed people to either um, switch their workplaces within this big company or to be supported to find jobs elsewhere. This whole idea of adjusting meant a controlled preparation for a diminishing workforce. Control while the industry was shrinking. Essentially, a way to prevent mass layoffs like they'd seen before. 
but the phase-out would be a long one. And in the meantime, the government would both subsidize the price of coal and support workers. To do this, the government went to communities to find out what they wanted. And Petra says that this was really important in making sure the transition was accepted. The idea was to find ways for people to stay in their communities. So the German government invested in new industries, things like car manufacturing, textile factories, and even universities, including Petra's own alma mater. And that was, of course, uh, forward-looking and trying to, to figure out what other jobs would be available beyond industrial jobs. This transition slowed down a bit in the 1970s and 1980s with the global oil crisis. Suddenly, it was important to have some energy sources at home. But by the 1990s, things again started to change. The German government had been subsidizing the coal industry at this point for decades. In 1997, the German government at the time announced that it would no longer be willing to subsidize coal the way it did before. And that really was a major turning point. But workers did not like this at all. So they took to the streets. There was very famously a huge demonstration where 220,000 people were forming a human chain that was 100 kilometers long. There were massive protests everywhere. The government said, OK, we hear you. We need to stop propping up this industry. But we can't just abandon you without help. Now they agreed to a last coal compromise. This was about creating a socially acceptable coal phase-out that was devoid of social hardship. It included paying for retraining for some miners, sometimes in entirely different fields, like this example from Petra's dad. Peter, noch was. Ich bin ja hier in dem Fitnessstudio und da ist auch jemand als Physiotherapeut. So he, for example, my dad goes to a fitness studio and there's a physiotherapist and he actually worked for the coal mine and he was one of those people and they approached them and, you know, asked them, so, you know, can you think of other jobs? And so his, he retrained. From coal miner to physiotherapist running a fitness studio, for example. There were also more retirements, including Werner, who got a bit of a surprise of his own. Ich bin nicht sehr jung in Rente gegangen, sondern erst mit 60 Jahren. Nein, es, es war so. Also. Okay. It was now clear, so from 1997 on, that my dad would start phase out at age 53. When I ask how he felt about this earlier phase out, which did mean some financial loss, he smiles, laughs and pumps his fists in the air. Okay. So as you saw, of course, my dad <laughs> was very happy <laughs> that uh, he no longer would have to work. Yeah, this is ja so. Das ist ja geschenktes Leben. So uh, my dad calls it a bit uh, kind of um, geschenktes Leben. So it's like gifted life. Gifted life for some workers, but not for all. Within the actual industry, few people really lost their jobs. There are many that are very strongly connected to the industry who did. But they weren't as organized, they weren't as vocal, they weren't really part, they were more at the periphery. Imagine you are working in a shop in a coal town. The local mine shuts down, and the employees that worked there are now commuting out of town to another mine. If the store you were working at then had to close because there were fewer shoppers, your job was just gone. 
And there was no other job lined up, no early retirement, and no paid retraining program. And Petra says, in this case, most of these workers were women. So wherever an energy transition is happening, to get a complete picture of the impact, she says you have to cast a wider net than just the coal mine or an oil field. It's really important for us to understand that there will be many people who will be lamenting the closing of mines. A lot of them don't even work directly in there. And that's, for me, the interesting parallel, right, when we even talk about Alberta, where um, it's many more people than those who are just directly employed by oil and gas who kind of fear or at least have some trepidations about what would happen to a region that is so defined and identifies with one energy carrier. While we can learn from Germany's approach to energy transition, Petra cautions it won't look the same in Canada. How can you replicate something that took so long, but also took a lot of money and also a lot of intervention by government? And this is, I think, where the comparison makes you wonder, because Germany is a country where people accept that the government will step in. People actually demand that a government should be providing these kind of measures that help so that there is not economic hardship. Now, what I understand so far from living in Alberta almost uh, nine years now is there's a very different understanding of what a government should do. There is another key difference, disagreement, even down to the language. Divisive, polarizing language. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. When I hear the words just transition, it signals eliminating jobs. And for Alberta, that is a non-starter. This has become almost a moral battle. And you pick your sides. Either, you know, you believe that we need to stop producing oil and gas or you don't. That's a very different battle than saying we need to make sure that people keep their jobs. In March, the federal government released its Sustainable Jobs Action Plan. If that means changing the language, then be it. But we need to address the kind of things that people are really, really worried about. And so maybe start first. And that's something that they did in West Germany. What are your worries? What are you most afraid of? What do you think needs to be addressed first? When we peer into history, we may not find exact parallels. Still, it might offer us some insight all the same. Like the role that unions played in negotiating with government and industry. Petra's mother, Elisabeth, would also add. Yeah, das Wichtigste ist also wirklich dabei, die Menschen wollen genau informiert werden. There needs to be absolute transparency and constant communication about what is actually going to happen. A, they need to know what exactly happens and what are my options to keep earning money. Um, Petra, yeah. Before we wrap up our video call, Werner has one more thing he wants to add about his early retirement that brings us back to soccer. And the one thing my dad loved is finally being able to drive there in the morning and watch his team do the training session. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was very important for me. As he says, gifted life to explore other interests. 
Love that music. Thanks, Molly. That story first aired in April of this year, and since then, Ottawa has introduced the Canadian Sustainable Jobs Act. The bill would create a council to advise the government on clean energy jobs. It would require that Ottawa come up with a sustainable jobs plan every five years and establish a secretariat to oversee the government's work on building a clean energy sector. Now, a committee just finished studying the legislation and has sent its report to the House of Commons for final debate and voting. The federal Conservatives and Alberta Premier Danielle Smith have opposed the Sustainable Jobs Act. It's a story that is sure to heat up in the new year, and we will stay on it and keep you up to date. Traveling by plane is fast and sometimes convenient, but it also pumps out a lot of carbon emissions, and that's a dilemma for many people. One listener reached out to ask about a different kind of journey. I'm Peter Eastope, and I live on North Pender Island. I've always been interested that I've read about and heard about people traveling on freighters. So I'm interested in surface marine travel as an alternative to air travel. For a retired person, um, a vacation of, say, six weeks or two months would not be unreasonable. And thanks for that question, Peter. We asked producer Rohit Joseph to check out Cargo Class. The ocean is one of the most scenic ways to travel. It's also one of the oldest. And cargo ships have got places to go anyway. So why not tag along? John Axon is director of the Sustainable Transportation Research Team at Simon Fraser University. He did the math, and he says compared to hopping on a flight, taking a trip on a cargo ship means fewer emissions. It's floating, you move, you move slow, you're not, if you're not in a big hurry. Even, even those ships you see out in harbors, uh, those are you know, typically the most efficient way to move cargo around. So you want to use that for passenger travel? Sure. <laughs> I mean, if it's, if it's a ship that's already going there... And all you're doing is like an extra crew room that you're in. I mean, you're, you, you haven't added any energy use to that thing at all, right? It's, it's, it's going to be fine. But is this even a thing we can do? As it turns out, yes. Yes, it is. There are several ways to do it. You can try to call a cargo ship company. And depending on their COVID safety regulations you can see whether you can just jump aboard with their cargo. They may have an extra cabin that you can stay in. But if you want help organizing, there are several cargo ship travel companies, many of them based in Europe, that coordinate everything for you. So let's go back to our listener, Peter. He told me he would be interested in doing a transatlantic cargo ship trip to Europe. Peter would have to get to Halifax and then do a round trip to Antwerp. A Belgian company called Captain Zepos offers this 37-day trip. On their website, they estimate it'll cost more than $4,000 for that trip. So with that much time and that much cost, who tends to do these trips? I posed that question to Joris van Bray, 
the owner of Captain Zeppos. What we offer is time, you know, time away from everything, slow. Uh, if people ask me, yeah, what can you do uh, aboard cargo ships? I immediately say nothing, nothing. There's nothing to do. The right people, they will say, oh, interesting. I can watch the ocean all day, all night. I can watch the stars. I can just sit there. I can talk to my, my fellow passengers. Uh, I can take pictures. I can read a book. Most of them, they take books. They don't even read because they are too busy with looking and enjoying just being aboard. <laughs> okay, so Eurus is obviously hyped on cargo ship travel. But he admits he's always had a passion for ships and the ocean. So I spoke with a travel YouTuber named Tal Oran to get a second opinion. Tal has a fear of flying, so he tries to avoid it as much as possible. Here's how he described his cargo ship trip from Italy to the United States. The cabin was phenomenal. Like I had been traveling uh, budget backpacking for my entire like four years of traveling up until that point. And I'd never stayed at a place really that nice. It was basically a massive hotel room for two. It was kind of like a little condo with a nice bathroom. Every time we came into port, I could see them hauling cargo on and off. Beautiful views of the ocean. Okay, so far so good, right? Hold your paddles. There are some big caveats. You're spending a lot of time on the sea. And you don't have consistent internet access or cell reception. And when there is a storm, it can be rough. So when we hit the hurricane, we just started to hit the side of a hurricane. The ship was rocking for four days nonstop. Four days, we were going left and right. And another two days, we were going up and down. I couldn't pee normally. I couldn't brush my teeth. I couldn't think straight. I didn't get seasick, but like, you're just like wobbly and dizzy for four days. You're just back and forth, back and forth. Tall decided cargo ship travel wasn't for him. And that's the thing. Cargo ships just aren't going to work for most people. So what can we do as individuals? The obvious thing is being more mindful of our travel. Taking a train or bus are greener alternatives. But John Axon says in the long term, we have to be okay with paying more for flights to reflect their environmental impact. Unless you're Peter Easthope from North Pender Island. Then, you might seriously consider hopping on a cargo ship. For What on Earth, I'm Rohit Joseph. Thanks for that, Rohit. That story first aired this June. And you know, Rohit, you really, I'm sorry, you didn't sell me on that. <laughs> I can't imagine myself getting on board a freighter and trying to deal with the storms. I would definitely get seasick. I just don't think it's my cup of tea, so to speak. So uh, it might work for some people. I'm looking for other alternatives. If you've got another one, let us know. Or if you have any climate questions, we love answering them. If you have a dilemma, whether it's travel, cooking, parenting, preparing for extreme weather... We want to help you make greener decisions in your life, so send us an email with your question, or better yet, email us a voice memo, and we will try our best to answer it. You might even hear your voice on the show. We're at earth at cbc.ca.
I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth. Coming up, a story that prompted a landslide of listener emails more than we'd ever seen before. About 10 years ago, a student approached me after they wrote the final exam. And as sometimes students do, they'll say, oh, thanks for the course, sir. I learned a lot. And the student said, yeah, thanks for the course, sir. But, you know, I wasn't really interested in a lot of your topics. I really (laughs) didn't care about the governor general and the reserve powers of the crown. Uh, or the Senate, the longest-running scandal in Canadian politics. He said, look, it's just not my world. What I'm worried about, what I think about, is the environment and the climate. And afterwards, I thought, you know, he's right. Turns out there are a lot of educators out there trying to figure out how to bring climate into the classroom. That conversation in just a few minutes. But first, one of my favorite stories from 2023, in part because it took me to a spectacular place this spring. The bellows and barks of sea lions, seemingly content, sprawling on a raft about 100 meters away from me. In the early evening sun, they look like the sultans of the sea. I'm on a wharf at Porto Cove in Howe Sound, the southernmost fjord in North America. The sea lions may just be resting up from a successful day of hunting for fish, their bellies full. They hunt for food up and down the sound, or at Katsum as it's called in the Squamish language. It's a spectacular setting, right next to the Sea to Sky Highway where snow-capped peaks scrape the sky and plunge down into the ocean below. There are others, people, also hunting for fish in the sound, but for a very different reason. And just north of here, I'm heading out with them to learn about their efforts to protect the biodiversity here as climate change threatens their marine home. Only one little bunch of eggs. That's exciting. Where's your GPS, Tina? I don't have that one. You know me, I'm like your worst data lady ever. I'm (laughs) after everything. I'm like, that's why I just got to call you, send a picture, and I'm done, right? I'm just arriving at the dock in the town of Squamish when Tina glides up next to the boat I'm about to board. She's on a stand-up paddleboard, smiling, seemingly oblivious to the rain and the chill in the air. She's excited to report that she spotted herring spawn, or eggs, as she was out getting some morning exercise with her two clients. Like I said, it's just one little clump. And it was nice, I got to show the ladies, so they were Yeah. We're just doing our fitness paddle this morning. You gotta educate people while you're out there. Yeah, that's right. Interpretation. Yeah. (laughs) It's actually a good omen for the day ahead, because herring and their eggs are exactly what we're on the lookout for as we head out in a vessel that looks kind of like a Zodiac, except bigger and sturdier. Okay, have a good paddle. See you later. Tina's part of a squad of citizen scientists reporting sightings of Herring Row to Matthew Van Utstem, one of the people on board here with me. He used to be a commercial fisherman, but now he pretty much only fishes for information on the herring. Van Utstem is part of the survey team that's sending data in to the region's Marine Stewardship Initiative. It's part of a larger effort afoot to understand and restore the ecosystem under the waves. As we steer out onto the harbour, he talks about how far they've come in five years of doing this. The first year that we started this, we essentially would like go out in the boat, survey out in the boat, come back once like the sunset or when we were too cold, change, drink coffee, and then go wander around in the estuary 
In the dark. Because <laughs> the low tides in January and February would often end up at like the middle of the night or something, but it would allow us to get out and monitor. And that first year was a really good learning curve for all of us of like yeah, what, what we, <laughs> yeah, what we could do me? and how much work goes into it. But now we have 30 volunteers about that monitor almost every bit of shoreline in the estuary as well as the blind channel. So people like Tina, who are a paddleboard guide and out with people all the time, also do work to monitor where the herring are spawning and record data and send it in if they see it. Now they've got better gear, a better idea of what to look for and how to do it. The surveys start in the dead of winter and last through early spring. Some done by boat, others by swimming the shoreline or checking in estuaries. Okay, I'm Courtney Smaha, the project director for the Akatsum Howe Sound Marine Stewardship Initiative. Smaha's on today's trip too, smiling despite the rain. All the information being gathered will help her and the initiative do their work. When there's herring, there's hope. And that's because during Tem Laut or time of the herring, um, it's a signifier of spring and it brings nutrients to this area. And with that, it brings other marine mammals like the yo-yos, the orcas. Um, and that's overall an indicator or a key indicator of ecological health. Do you have a sense of how ecologically healthy, from the work you've done already, how healthy the waters are now? It's really hard to tell because I think um, there's not a lot of funding for the ocean environment itself globally. And so we don't really have a great baseline of what the ecosystem is looking like in our ocean environments. And so a lot of this work is more exploratory and collecting baseline data to get a better understanding of our ocean ecosystem so that we can make better informed decisions when it comes to a lot of the work activities that we conduct in these waters. So the best way to get information, in this case photos and video, is to actually get out of the boat and into the water. Van Oostem is spraying lubricant into a wetsuit because we've just spotted a group of hungry sea lions in a feeding frenzy, feeding on herring. <laughs> the seawater looks like it's boiling as the herring skim the surface, seemingly looking to escape. Seagulls swoop down looking for an easy snack. Van Oostem has learned to go where the birds flock together. Take photos and videos of everything. Even if you don't think it's important now, one day it will be. And look for the birds. And I think those have been two things that we have always followed and has always helped kind of guide our awareness of this place. Van Oostem's got the cadence of a school teacher. So it's no surprise to learn he actually is one when he isn't doing this work in the evenings and on weekends. And he's found a way to ensure the youngest members of his classes will pay attention to what he's telling them about what's going on out here. He created one character, then another. My students spend all day listening to me yap and blabber about stuff and tell them everything's important. <laughs> and so I had to find a different way to communicate what was happening with Herring and what we were seeing on the sound. And uh, that's kind of where Harriet the Herring came into the story. And every year since then, she writes the kids letters and tells them about the things that we see out on the sound. And 
all of her letters are based on the things that we're actually seeing out on the water. So one day we go out surveying and we run into Lingcod Egg Mass and all of a sudden Liam the Lingcod and Harriet the Herring are having a conversation and uh, the kids are not only learning about the role Herring play but also that there are Lingcod in the waters right near their home. There's so much to learn about out here and I'm about to get a lesson of my own. It looks like they had lost the bait ball or that bait ball. <laughs> Are you calling it a big ball? A bait, bait ball. Bait ball. Oh, bait ball. Yeah. Wait, what? Okay, I'm going to stop here for a second. Bait ball. I have never heard of that. I thought it was something to buy at the tackle shop to attract fish. But no, I learned this is what it is. It's the shape the herring form themselves into as a way to try to survive a sea lion attack. A whirling, swirling ball of fish. A bait ball. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Let's go back to the water and the young man who dove in to see what was going on. Mommy! Oh! I'm not used to that. <laughs> They're just swimming under me. The fish? No, the seals? Oh. They're scaring me. <laughs> I'm not used to that. Oh! That's Johnny. He's part of the team out on the water today. He donned the wetsuit, then got a little too close for comfort. It's something new for him, even though he's been doing this kind of work for a long time. Hot squall, Johnny Queen, Snar, Tanachin, Kla, Mikwapsum, Skohot Mishoth, Anonasan Squalwin, Chenkoman Tomi, with Chuk Eitititit um, hello, my name is Jonathan Williams. I come from the Yerkwapsen uh, Reservation, which is in Squamish. I'm a Squamish person, and I am respectful in my heart. I am grateful for you being here today and taking the time to come out in this uh, rainy day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, I just want you to tell me what it was like for you to see that, that school of fish there. You sounded really excited. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. There's not every day that we go swimming that we'll get to see fish. Most days we don't see anything. That's kind of the, that's kind of the point. We're trying to figure out when stuff's there and when stuff isn't there. So it uh, was a great opportunity to be able to see a school of fish kind of scary though because I, all the seals were coming after them but <laughs> it was still it's still a really cool opportunity to see all those fish they were only like I don't know five ten feet in front of me well hard to say with the goggles on but that's what it felt like why is it important for you to be part of this uh, personally uh, I'm uh, I'm a Scottish person so we have been we say we've been here since time immemorial we have a reserve which actually is across from here that has science that backs it up that is it's a 10,000 year old site so it's one of our oldest reserves. We've been here for at least that long. Um, we we say we've definitely been here longer, but that's how far science has we've been. How long science has we've been here? And and since then, since we've uh, for, since we've been here, we have been stewards of the land. We have lived with the land, taken care of the land, and been one with the land. That's another critical aspect of this work: restoring his people's relationship to the water and what lies within it. As part of that. Elders wanted to bring back a traditional way of harvesting herring roe, suspending branches of hemlock in the water. Van Oostem was part of that effort. And within like four days of putting the boughs in the water, herring had come in and spawned the whole shoreline and coated these boughs thicker than like we couldn't even lift these boughs out of the water. They were so covered. And that's really where like at least my connection to herring and my understanding of the role they play started. Like I had never truly understood 
the like abundance and nutrients that come with those fish until like trying to lift one of those bows out of the water and it being too heavy because there were so many eggs on it. Increasingly, the people of the Squamish Nation have reconnected to their past practices. And Courtney Smaha says there's been success on another front. A second part to the significance of conducting herring surveys is to also get people out into the water and establish those connections because people won't protect what they don't know. And so getting out into the waters and experiencing the thrush of activity that come with herring is part and parcel to why this work is so important, just to develop those relationships with the waters and the ecosystem that we have here. Are you finding that's having an impact? That, that community knowledge is, is having an impact? I like to think so, absolutely. Um, With the Herring Project, just in my short time here as project director, we have seen a tremendous growth in support for the Herring Surveys, a lot of um, community participation. When we had our community engagement session to recruit volunteers this year, um, over 50 people showed up, and that is way more than we had last year. And so I think there's this Um, growth of understanding of herring and its importance in our region and with that it brings enthusiasm from the community members to be a part of this initiative and go out and experience and see herring and chemish and um, yeah forage fish more broadly to gain that connection and sense of place. The herring appear to be making a comeback as the waters recover from years of contamination by pulp mills and other industry on shore. Mills have closed and the waters are healthier but there are still challenges. The ocean is acidifying and warming due to climate change. That's why the crew who's out here today and others along with them argue the work is so important. The knowledge about spawning sites will help them and others to fight to protect the habitat from future activity, such as a planned liquid natural gas plant. For now though, there are the simple wonders of seeing nature up close. Holy that's a lot of fish! <laughs> and as long as there's lots of fish, the sea lions will keep coming back. And as they return in larger numbers, orcas have followed. Biodiversity creeping back, and with it, the hope these creatures will survive. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. everybody, I, I think we can get started. Uh, welcome to the second lecture of Arts 1023, Arts First, Climate and the Environment. Uh, for those of you who weren't able to attend on Monday, I'm Dr. Heather Miller. I'm the instructor for the course. 
today we're going to really start to think That's the sound of Heather Miller's class just getting started at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. This climate and environment course will soon be mandatory for all art students there, and Heather believes that's a first for a Canadian university. We heard about it because her colleague Donald Wright reached out to tell us how the school is rethinking its approach to teaching climate change. Both Donald Wright and Heather Miller are political science professors at UMB, and I spoke with them in January. Hello. Hello from New Brunswick. (laughs) Donald, before we get to Heather's new class, you wrote to us to share how you've been working to include climate change in your political science classes. What what was the, the light bulb moment that started you down this path? Yeah, that's such a really good question. About 10 years ago, a student approached me after they wrote the final exam. And as sometimes students do, they'll say, oh, thanks for the course, sir. I learned a lot. And the student said, yeah, thanks for the course, sir. But, you know, I wasn't really interested in a lot of your topics. I really didn't (laughs) care about the governor general and the reserve powers of the crown uh, or the Senate, the longest running scandal in Canadian politics. He said, look, it's just not my world. What I'm worried about, what I think about is the environment and the climate. And afterwards, I thought, you know, he's right. So that summer, I went to the library. I checked out a ton of books. I subscribed to blogs. I subscribed to podcasts. And I began to teach myself climate change and the politics of climate change. And over the next couple of years, I would introduce a few units in each course in my introduction to Canadian politics. And after a few years, I said, you know what? I have a lot of material now. I think I will teach a standalone course. And so we went through the process of creating a new course, uh, an introductory course, The Politics of Climate Change. And it is my favorite course to teach. I absolutely love it. And have you had any students come up to you and say that kind of thing about what you're teaching now? Or is that a matter of history for you? No, if anything, they really are appreciative because they simply don't know a lot about climate change, what the UNFCCC is, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. So they're, I think, quite appreciative to have this information, these terms, these concepts that they can use to follow the conversation and to participate in the conversation. And that conversation is going to be their future. As I tell them at the start of every class, it doesn't matter what career path you choose, whether it's in teaching or medicine or law or public policy uh, or retail or restaurant work, you're going to have to be thinking about climate change because it's going to change everything we do going forward. Or journalism, I might add. <laughs> or journalism, you might add. That's right. Now, Heather, um, that, that was you, we heard, summoning the class to order uh, a few seconds earlier uh, in the program. Tell me how the first couple of days of, of teaching this new course went. Uh, It's going well. We're still in the early stages. So this course is a a pilot course for a first-year course that all art students have to take. And traditionally, we've had um, a a couple of different iterations of this course, which is really designed to teach basic research skills, uh, writing and communication, but to really have students kind of explore who they are as students and residents and members of the research community at UMB. And under the leadership of our dean, we've 
developed this new course with a twin focus. So in the first semester, they focus on justice. Uh, and then in the second semester, they're, they're focusing on issues of climate and the environment. And so the course is really designed to use environment as a jumping off point for students to be able to explore all the different ways that different disciplines within the arts can address the sort of core issues related to climate and the environment. So I'm pretty excited about it. Students seem enthusiastic so far. I asked them whether or not there was anyone who was sort of suspicious of the environment as a topic and nobody put up their hands. So that means they're all pretty interested. <laughs> That's great. Um, Donald, the, the, the university is is piloting Heather's course this term, but in the next school year, it's going to become mandatory for all UNBR students. Why do you say climate change education should be mandatory? Uh, because it's going to drive our world going forward. All the decisions we make, uh, whether it's the most intimate and profound decision you can make on whether to have a child or not, or the decisions we make as a society on carbon pricing, on pipelines, on resources, major questions will be driven by climate change. And students have to know it. They have to understand it. They have to have the, the language and the conceptual tools to follow the debate, participate in the debate, uh, make sense of the debate. Otherwise, there'll be orphans just being buffeted around by extreme weather events and headlines that they don't fully understand. Now, Heather, when we talk about climate, we often talk about science, and, and that's true of this show as well. But, but your class is called Climate and Environment in Humanities and Social Sciences. What role do you think the humanities and social sciences can play when it comes to grappling with finding solutions for climate change? That's a lovely question, and especially one that I'm quite passionate about. So my own research as a political scientist is on the politics of climate and energy in Canada, particularly focused on provincial politics. And often what I tell students is that for many of the issues that we're facing with regards to climate, the technical solutions are there. I mean, we know how to generate power from wind and solar. We know how to develop smart grids. We know some of the sort of hard and soft adaptation technology. What's much less clear is how to solve the problem of transitioning an entire society away from our dependence on carbon. And there, social science has the tools to understand some of the challenges that we face in terms of changing student or sorry, student behavior, uh, but also just changing our own behavior, but changing our political institutions, exploring the ways in which incumbent industries um, may resist those kinds of transitions. But also, and this is really apparent to me, you know, one of the challenges of this course for me is, is to sort of move beyond my comfort zone as a social scientist and, and think back to my days as an English major to think about the ways in which fiction can help us imagine uh, different futures. So, for example, my introductory lecture today talked about the different discourses that we have in the world or different ways of knowing and thinking about the environment and the way that that informs the kinds of discussions we have as students, but also as both members of the research community, but also the broader community that students are involved in throughout the different aspects of their lives. There's one particular thing I'm interested in. The, the, the class description includes the line, how can we act collectively to make change? What kinds of collective actions are, are you going to look at? 
questions. So we start off with water and there we're going to be looking at the work of water protectors and in particular some of the sort of indigenous leadership across Turtle Island, particularly with regards to Standing Rock. But then we're also going to be looking at the role of land defenders. And then more broadly, we're going to be looking at climate action, you know, both the nonviolent action, you know, civil action evident through the sort of massive climate strikes that we've seen over the last couple of years, but also some of the more sort of ground up work around Extinction Rebellion, for example. But within the course, uh, students are going to have to do a collective action project. And there we're asking them to think through in a sort of lived way, the challenges of working collectively on an issue. Students are, are going to have the option of, of writing a short play, of delivering a petition to their member of parliament or developing an op-ed for a newspaper article. So hopefully those are some of the ways in which the students have the opportunity to really think through why it is so hard to organize, but also some of the joys of working together collaboratively. That sounds like it's going to be interesting to see what you get out of that. And, and, and Donald, your, your courses on the politics of climate change, climate change and politics seem to intersect every day in Canada. I'm wondering what current examples you and your students are hashing out. We are looking certainly at carbon pricing in Canada, climate federalism, Ottawa versus the provinces, the politics around pipelines and the purchasing of pipelines, the expansion of pipelines. But just to pick up on something you were talking about earlier with Heather, this idea of collective action. That's one of the big themes of my course is that we do look at formal politics through the United Nations and, and then with uh, Ottawa and uh, the provinces or Washington and the states. So we look at formal politics, but we also look at climate politics from the bottom up when people organize and mobilize and push for changes. So we look at Extinction Rebellion, we look at Scientist Rebellion, we look at the Sunrise Movement. It's also so exciting. It's bottom-up, it's social movement. I'm wondering if either of you have, have, I mean, Heather, I know you've just begun this, but have either of you heard um, students coming up with any great solutions that you haven't heard anywhere else yet? Well, every now and then I do teach a lot of engineering students. <laughs> and of course, they're wonderful students to teach. Because, of course, they say climate change is just an engineering problem. We can engineer a way out of this. Uh, and they have all sorts of wacky ideas because they, uh, well, you know, you've heard umbrellas in space. I would tell the students that I admire your passion, but I don't think it's simple as putting umbrellas in space, uh, that we need uh, a lot more everyday solutions uh, at the community level, at the national level, and at the international level. Uh, but still, I admire their excitement. I admire their passion. They are really turned on by this material. And Heather, it probably is too early in your course, but but I'm wondering if they haven't been giving you brilliant new ideas, what, what difference are you hoping the course makes for your students? So many of our students we do know are, are facing sort of high levels of challenges of anxiety. And a lot of that is generated by climate anxiety about the sort of concerns of, of just being feeling overwhelmed, you know, with regards to what the world is going to look like in 20 years. And so I'm hoping that the course will provide them with some of the tools to understand and break down uh, and, and really sort of dig underneath all those different elements of climate, but also to develop some of the tools to work together to see sort of potential solutions. Definitely in some of the courses that we 
teach here on environmental politics, I've seen transformative movement from students coming in sort of feeling overwhelmed to finally being like, oh, well, now I can break down and I can understand the different elements of politics. I can understand why things are happening the way they are. And that helps me consume and engage with media, for example, and try to actually understand, make better sense of world events. And Donald, there there are the climate change courses popping up at universities across Canada, but I'm wondering what you would say to educators who might be looking at their own course offerings and wondering if climate teaching needs to be more prominent? Well, the short answer is yes, it does. But the longer answer is, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Look, climate politics is a long way from my area of expertise in very technical terms. I'm a historian. I write biographies of Canadian historians. But I developed this... uh, use a hip word, I developed a side hustle in climate (laughs) politics. And now I'm just so passionate about it. And it's so rewarding to teach. So if you're thinking, if there's a professor out there who's thinking about, well, maybe I should add some units, or maybe I should develop a standalone course, my advice is fire off an email to me, and we'll start a conversation. And I'll happily share my syllabi, my notes, my references, my resources with them. Heather Miller and Donald Wright, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That interview first aired in January of this year, and after we spoke to Heather and Donald, you sent us so many emails. They came from across Canada, Victoria to Newfoundland, and everywhere in between. We also had a couple of inquiries from beyond our borders, one from Uganda and one from Tanzania. They're from teachers at every level, from middle school to graduate school, all interested in bringing more climate education into their classrooms. Coming up on next week's show, we're going to check in with Donald Wright about the incredible response and what's next. That's part of a special episode we're planning for you, full of updates from our guests about the climate work they're planning for 2024. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. Thanks to Laura, and I swear it's not me, for giving us five stars. It's another Laura. She calls us her favorite climate change podcast. She says you definitely need to listen if you're suffering from climate despair to realize so much is happening. Thank you to the What On Earth team. Well, thank you, Laura. And really, it's not me. By the way, the One on Earth team is Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Danielle Piper, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.